This episode of the Bucktails podcast is brought to you by Pistol Creek and Trip Sporting Goods. Oh, good blood. All right, that's some good blood here. Yeah. Look at that. Good deer, babe. Welcome to Bucktails Podcast. This is Eli Self. Tonight I have on, or I'm going to be calling, Brent Ehrler. Um, I met him at the Bassmaster Classic this past year up in Knoxville. Um, I was walking around the expo and walked up and talked to him. Super nice guy. And I uh, told him that I had a podcast and I wanted to uh, try to get him on and just to pick his brain about some stuff. So I want to talk to him today about Lake Lanier fishing, finesse fishing, a little bit of forward facing sonar stuff. And if it's changed, you know, how he fishes or how he used to um, talk about sponsorship stuff and trying to get sponsors and how that's changed over over time. And um, yeah, so that's kind of the goal for today. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give him a call and hopefully he'll answer. He's on the road today. Hello? Hey, is this Brent? How's that? Yeah, I can hear you loud and clear. Perfect. Is that better than before? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, okay, perfect. All right, cool. Well, uh, well, how's it going? How's your drive going so far? Oh, it's it's pretty easy. Just driving across the desert here. We're we're actually headed to Mammoth Lakes, which is a ski resort, but we're going across this high desert area. It's just miles of nothing out here. Wow. All right. So, yeah, so but yeah, it's going great. Cool. So, are you going for like a family trip or for a tournament, or what are you doing? Uh, just just a family trip to go skiing, snow skiing here over the weekend, and then uh, head back home on Monday. Oh, nice. Yeah, my cousin. Yeah. yeah, my cousin snow ski a little bit. I haven't gotten into it much. I've been once, but uh, really, yeah, I live in North Georgia, so there's a few areas like up in the Carolinas and Tennessee where you can go. But uh, no, that sounds like a good time. It's not not necessarily famous for it, for sure. No, it's I get it. Yeah, I I, I was fortunate. I grew up skiing with my parents and have continued on. Now my son's in skiing, so we're you know he's been talking about it a bunch. So we're finally going. Gotcha. Awesome. Uh, this year. Yeah. Gotcha. How old, yeah. Yeah. How old's your son? He's 12. 12 years old. I've got two little girls. I've got a three-year-old and a year and a half old. So, uh, not quite into the, uh, the skiing yet. We went, we did go on, yeah. a, we did go up to the mountains over, uh, the Christmas break and we, there's like a kid sledding hill we took them to. Then the three-year-old got to do some snow tubing, but, uh, oh, so, yeah. that, so that was That's fun. Great. Yeah. It was a good time. Yeah. Yeah. That's but, awesome. Yeah, but anywho, yeah, so my name's Eli Self. I, you probably don't remember me much, but uh, I met you I at the, yeah, I met you at the Classic last yep. year in Knoxville. Um, I, was, I was surprised to see that there was no, there was one guy talking to you. There wasn't like a big line or anything. Um, so I was like, well, heck, I've got to, I've got to wait for a minute. Cause you know, I saw, I saw Rick Clun. He had a, a line of people waiting to talk to him and a few other guys. And I'm like, heck, they you know, not going to be a huge wait, so I, I hung around and talked to you there for a second. So, uh, oh, good. Yeah, so thank you so much nice. for talking to me. Of you know, I was, you know, before I called you, I was telling you know the the guest that uh, 
or my not a live audience, but you know, my listeners tell them that you're super friendly and you know, willing to come on. And this is a very, very small podcast, uh, Bucktails podcast. It's more of a hobby, but I've enjoyed, I've you know, got to interview oh, a few, great. yeah, interviewed a few people. You're probably the biggest that I've interviewed so far. So, uh, so congratulations. So cool. You're the, you're the most famous one. I have, I have interviewed Randall Tharp. He's up there, uh, close to your level, but I actually, I got to fish with Randy, uh, growing up. I went on a trip with the USSA, like kids with disabilities and things like that get to go. So I did meet Randy through that, but, uh, oh, good. but yeah, so you're, uh, definitely one of the, if not the biggest name I've ever had on here. So how does that feel? Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so I was going to go in. forward to it. Yeah, man. I was, I was uh, going to go into a couple of, go into some stats here about your um, your career. And it may it may be right, may be wrong, but it's uh, from California. You've been a pro for 19 years, it says. Is that right? Yep. 19 years, uh, 50 top top 10 finishes eight wins and there may that may this is this says as of 2021 so that's probably not true but no i think that's right i think i have nine but i can't um yeah yeah i'm not a stickler on that so eight eight or eight or nine um, wins but still very very impressive at the highest level and three million dollars in career earnings uh so yeah, so I was going to go through some of those little stats there, but that's uh, okay. you know, to kind of paint the picture of who you are, and you're you know definitely one of the uh, one of the biggest names in the sport, and I've been watching you for a long time on TV and YouTube and all of the above, and um, great. you know, so before we get into any of the other questions I had for you, I wanted to I ask kind of everybody I have on here. We do hunting stories, fishing stories, but what is your origin story as far as like? fishing go so how did you get your start was it a dad and uncle a grandpa was it pond fishing creeks you know how did you get started fishing and then kind of uh you know quick little synopsis to your path to the place okay. great i love it now is that do you want me to kind of go through it right now or do you want to wait and do it when we're actually rolling no you know we can, we can go through it right now i mean I've, I've been recording um already so yeah we can uh we can jump right in if you want Gotcha. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So, uh, I guess my origin story is, you know, kind of similar to, I'm assuming how a lot of people get into fishing, you know, their dad, you know, takes a tackle box and a couple rods and you go down to the pond and you put a bobber on and you throw a bobber out, you know, wait for it to, to sink, you know, and you reel a fish in, you know, and that's kind of how it went for me. There's a local park called Ford park on the town where I grew up in and there's, there's two little ponds there. Uh, I still to this day remember going there the first time I must've been four or five years old and they have a kind of a sidewalk that they made around the pond to walk around it. Well, they poured concrete and the concrete, you know, goes out of the water and there's concrete and I remember taking a little night crawler, you know, on a hook, and I, I remember just dropping it in the water to see what it looked like. And I watched the bluegill swim out from underneath this ledge. Like that was my pattern when I was a kid. It's, you know, you take that that worm and you drop it in front of this ledge, and then if there's if there's a bluegill there, he just swims out and eats it. You know, and I watched this whole thing happen, and you know, no pun intended, I was hooked, uh, you know, instantly. So, uh, 
for the longest time I was kind of, you know, whatever fish bit, you know, if it was a carp or a catfish or a trout, it didn't matter. You know, that's just kind of, I just love fishing. And, uh, later on I got into, uh, bass fishing a little bit and fly fishing. And so I used to tie all my own flies and I fly fished a ton. And then I started, you know, getting into bass fishing. When I started getting into bass fishing more than that kind of took everything, you know, that, that took over everything. I enjoyed that more than anything, just more because I was intrigued with the artificial lure side of it. You know, I, I'm not really a bait fisherman. I don't really like putting a worm on and throwing it out and waiting. You know, I like this, the concept of fooling a fish and being active with it. You know, I can't, I can't sit still. Uh, I don't like waiting. You know, I want to be casting and moving and doing something to where, you know, I feel like I'm trying to entice that fish. So that was kind of, you know, what drew me to uh, the artificial side for bass fishing. And, uh, you know, this was at an early age. I was probably around, I'd say 12 years old when I started getting into bass fishing a little bit more. And then, uh, it was always kind of there. You know, I did a lot of different things here and there, school and, you know, I snow skied a lot. I actually went and worked at a ski resort and, you know, thought that I was going to get into snow skiing as, as a living. And then, you know, then I went to college and then when I went, went into college, then that was kind of when I started getting a little more serious into bass fishing and I joined a club uh bass club that had one tournament a month and it was a small club they only had 25 members and it was a, a neat format in a sense that you'd have a boater and a non-boater and you both you know worked for your five fish limit but it was your combined weight that went for the win so it was not a cutthroat. You know, the guy in the front really wanted the guy in the back to catch fish because, you know, it, you were both helping each other. And it was a great learning platform. Uh, the club was called the Point Seekers. They're out of Riverside, California. And I started with them. And then I went and I started fishing as a AAA, which is the amateur, in a circuit called One Bass, which stands for Western Outdoor News. Uh, they had a circuit out uh, on the West Coast, uh, you know, regional. We went to Arizona, Nevada, California. And same thing, I fished as a co-angler. And that, in the format they had was the pro and the co-angler both work to catch five. doesn't matter who catches them. But if we go out and we catch 12 pounds one day, I carry 12 pounds over onto the amateur side, and he carries 12 pounds over onto his pro side. And they were two-day events. And I did that for, I, I believe, one year. And then I fished as a boater on the one bass circuit. And then I started fishing uh, the BASS Western Invitationals. And then the Western Invitationals left because they, uh, they didn't feel like the West was giving the participation that they needed. And that is when the FLW Everstart circuit came out, uh, out West. So I started fishing the Everstarts. Uh, and I believe that was 2003 and I fished 03, 04, the Everstarts. And then I qualified to fish the FLW tour. And I went and started fishing the FLW tour in 2005. And I fished with them for, I believe 10 years. 
And then I went over to the Bass Elites. I fished the Bass Elites for four years. And then Major League Fishing came out with the Bass Pro Tour. And I've been with them since 2019. So, you know, we're talking 20-something years here of, of kind of, you know, bass fishing, you know, including the amateur, you know, club level stuff, one month kind of thing. So, you know, I've been doing it for, for quite a while now. Um, I believe I started tournament fishing when I was about 21. Um, so, you know, I joined that club when I was 20 or 21. So, you know, I was still in college uh, when I was doing that stuff. And then uh, here we are today. I've been doing it full time since about 2007. Um, I started in 2005, but I was still uh, working. I was actually working construction. I was, I was going to get my contractor's license. And then there was an easy transition with the housing market tanking and fishing taking off. It just fished full time and that was my, my sole income. So I've been doing it full time for, you know, for a long time now. So um, I would say it was probably full time since about 2007, even though I was fishing professionally in 2005. Gotcha. So, Okay. It's been a, a crazy journey for sure. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. I, I can tell you a fish I caught in 2005. I, I can't tell you, you know, a fish I caught in my last tournament of this last season. <laughs> so, <laughs> everything's kind of running together now. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure the, uh, you've probably been to certain lakes a blue million times and I'm sure it all runs together for you at this point, doing it for that long. I mean, that's a, I mean, you know, most people you go into a job, you know, after 30 years, it's, you, you retire, you know, so you've almost had, I mean, a full 30 year, I mean, you know, you're getting there, uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. As far as, uh, you know, on your way to having a full on 30 year career. I mean, that's, that's, that's a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and on those, yeah. on yeah. those tournaments where you were saying, um, it was a boater and a non-boater and you were fishing, you know, for the same weight, were those random draws or was it like, uh, you fished, like with a certain partner, I think with the point seekers, the point seekers, it was a random draw. Okay. And then same thing with, uh, the, the one, one bass okay. circuit, uh, Western outdoor news. Uh, it was, it was a draw format to where, you know, the amateur get drawn with a pro. And, uh, it, it was great because, you know, it was, it was a great way to learn. Um, you know, you didn't get, you know, it wasn't a, format where the pro is you know rightfully trying to catch the fish because they're fishing the pro class and therefore not necessarily helping the, the amateur in the back um this is a format where it was a shared weight so you know if the uh the guy in the back that the amateur caught a fish it helped the pro so uh in fact i'll, I'll tell do you know who art barry is i do not so art art barry is the california uh fisherman uh, when I first went back and started fishing the FLW tour, uh, he was my roommate. He went back and fished for, I want to say fished the FLW tour for a couple of years. Really good fisherman. Uh, when I was fishing as a, uh, as an amateur on the AAA side, I drew art in a tournament. And I, now I fished for two years. I forgot. It wasn't one year. I fished for two years as an amateur. The very first year that I fished, I qualified for the championship tournament. And I go to the California Delta for the championship tournament. 
and I draw Art Berry, which, you know, I knew who Art was because he was a real famous Western fisherman. And he told me the night before, I go, hey, what do I need to tie on? He goes, take all the line off of every one of your reels and just show up in the morning. Don't bring any baits or anything. He goes, I have everything for you. And he goes, I want you to have the right line and, and everything rigged up. So uh, don't worry about it. So I show up in the morning and he starts re-spooling my rods with his line to make sure <laughs> that I had all the right equipment. And he goes, tie this bait on this rod. And I tie that on and he's re-spooling my other rod. And he goes, tie this bait on that rod. And we go out fishing. I, you know, I jump out on the back deck. He goes, no, 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 get up here. I want you shoulder to shoulder with me. And wow. so I jumped up front and fished, you know, shoulder to shoulder with them in this, you know, program tournament. You know, it's a great format to, to learn. You know, it's not the cutthroat, you know, the guy in the front, you know, kind of backseating the guy in the back because, you know, if it's a pro-am format and it's not a shared weight, if the amateur in the back catches a fish, that's, that's a fish that the pro could use to, you know, win some big money or if he's doing it full time, you know, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah, I've heard some uh, uh, I've heard some horror stories about that. You know, fishing the BFLs. You know, some of my buddies and my cousins have fished BFLs around here on Lake Lanier and whatnot. And uh, same deal. You know, they'll have them sticking out in the middle of the lake and nothing to throw at, and out there, you know, in no man's land. And you know, some some of the boaters are great, and they you know give them a chance to cast. And you know, if they get hung up, they'll go you know get their lure out or what have you. But yeah, I've heard a yeah. few. I've heard a few stories. My cousin fished a tournament, and he said he would, you know, get hung up. Said, "Hey, can you ease over? You know, ten feet. I'm, you know, I'm hung up right here." And then the boater would be like, "No, I don't have time for that." You know, and then he'd so he ended up having yeah. to break off a whole lot of stuff. And you know, I, I get it. Some of the guys are fishing for their livelihood, but it's, I mean, and but that format, like the BFLs or the Bass Opens, it opens the door for that to happen. And that's you know, you yeah. get you get men and women with money involved and you know some some nasty things come out so un- unfortunately and that's just you know the way the world is yeah but uh but no that yeah. sounds i'd heard about the the one bass stuff on another podcast at some point and i thought that was a very interesting format um yeah so they they still they're 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 no longer doing the series okay uh they had a north and a south they're no longer doing that, but they are still doing the one bass U.S. Open. So if you ever hear about the U.S. Open, this, yeah. that's one bass. One is W-O-N. It stands yeah. for Western Outdoor News. Okay. And they still have the U.S. Open. Uh, I want to say they have three separate U.S. Opens now. So they have three tournaments okay. a year. Um, and you know, they're neat formats for a pro-am. Uh, you know, scenario. Gotcha. And I'm thinking I heard something recently that Bassmaster is like the U.S. Open is now a qualifier for the Classic. Is that right? I think that's I think that's some some news that just came out re- pretty recently. I don't know that. Um, that would be kind of a. I think that's crazy what I scenario. Yeah, I think that's what so I a heard. guy can qualify for the Bassmaster Classic through the. U.S. Open? I think so. Let me. I can look it up real huh. quick. It, I, it was on another fishing podcast. It may have been Bass Talk Live. Um, but yes, huh. it was something. It was a. It was good news for the Western anglers because you know the there's not a whole lot of uh, Western things for guys to you know qualify for the you know for Bassmaster Opens wise or things like that. And I think yeah, 
that was an uh you know a new some news that came out. Okay, let's see here. Yeah, one bass announces new partnerships, prizes, and incentives for twenty twenty four open tournaments. Let's see. They will include five pro am style events, and the events will also feature automatic berths for pro and AAA competitors to compete in the 2025 Bass Nation Championship. And at the Bass Nation Championship, three anglers earn berths to the 2026 Classic. So it's not a direct path, but I guess it's a way for them to qualify. To the Bass Nation. Yeah, so gotcha. it, yeah, so it puts them into the Bass Nation Championship. So that makes sense. But but it's gotcha. another it's another avenue for western guys to get out there and it's, you know, that's Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's good news. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, but um, no, they're they're a great organization for sure. You know, awesome. I, I enjoyed fishing, especially learning. You know, it was a great way to learn. You know, to just you know get in tournament bass fishing. There's no better way to learn than to go and fish a format like that. Right. Well, and that's something that uh, a lot of guys that are around here that I grew up with, you know, have recommended. You know, to people is to fish BFLs, go be a co-angler first, you know, even if you have a boat. I mean, I've got uh, one of my brother-in-law's good friends has a boat, fishes Lanier all the time by himself, you know, on his own boat, but he fishes BFL as a co-angler. He said he, he said he learned so much on the back of, you know, a lot of different guys' boats. He fishes the entire, I think it's the Bulldog series, but he said... That's something that he's always said. He said, I mean, heck, I, he said, you know, I might could go and finish middle of the pack and do decent on the boater side. He said, but heck, I have just as much or more fun, you know, on the back of different people's boats as a co-angler. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great way to learn for sure. Cool. All right. Well, um, I've got a few questions to run through here for you. Um, one, just off the top of your head, take like five seconds to think. The best tournament ever for you. What is the best tournament, like the most memorable, what have you, the, your best tournament ever, what comes to mind? Um, you know, I kind of have to go with uh, the Forcewood Cup in 2006. Okay. Uh, I, I, started in, in, I started fishing the FLW Tour in 2005. Uh, I did not qualify for the championship, the Forcewood Cup, in 2005. I fished again in 2006. I qualified for the Forest Wood Cup Championship. And then I ended up winning that tournament. And, you know, here I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm young. I didn't, you know, I'm working construction at home. I'm, uh, you know, fishing nationally, but I don't know what I'm going to do with it. It's just a hobby. And then, you know, I, I ended up winning a, you know, the championship tournament, which, at the time, it was 500000 for first. Yeah. And, you know, I won that tournament. I remember thinking that this is this is going to change everything. You know, this is, this is a big deal moving forward that, you know, this could potentially be more than just a hobby for me. And it was really the, the turning point for, you know, me to where, you know, actually make fishing a career path. And, uh just that was that was a big deal you know that you know i have to go with that tournament just because of the you know the magnitude of something like that happening just kind of changed uh you know my whole future really 
Yeah, and that's something you can uh, you can travel and fish for a long time on a half a million dollars, and I'm sure that opened up a lot of sponsorship relationships and you know things like that for you. Um, do you think if you wouldn't have won that tournament, do you think it would have you know would you have still been able to make it to where you are today, or is that was that like a huge you know a huge step for you to make it as you know full time touring pro? I, I think it uh, I think it still would have happened. Um, I I want to say it took. I don't think I won a tournament in 2007, but I think I won my first tour level event in 2008. Um, so it wasn't like you know. One thing about bass fishing is is you don't necessarily go out and win a tournament and instantly get sponsors, right? And my sponsorship, you know, platform didn't necessarily completely change overnight after winning that tournament. But when I was able to kind of back it up, uh, you know, the next year, the year after that, and then the year after that, again, that's, you start kind of building on that, you know, it's just, you kind of bank, you know, when one thing happens, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. And then something else happens and then something else happens, something else happens. Then it's like, okay, you know, now, you're kind of at that level of, of getting more attention and getting more uh, sponsorship opportunities. Uh, just winning one term alone will not do it. Yeah. And so you have to be able to back it up. And I was fortunate to do that over the next several years. You know, the next five years, I was able to accomplish a lot and then, uh, you know, be able to, uh, you know, work with, with more sponsors and have more opportunities. And so, you know, I was very, you know, fortunate to have first off that tournament happen, but then be able to, you know, back it up that, uh, you know, if I wasn't able to back it up, you know, I, I may not be where I'm at right now. So fortunately I was able to continue, you know, moving up and kind of, you know, figure out my way in, in the, the fishing world and, continue to have success and so it kind of helped uh like i said just helped out that sponsorship portfolio gotcha no that makes a lot of sense and that's uh you know a lot of people are being very transparent nowadays with sponsorships and how hard it is to to make it as a pro and it's not just you know just because you're a pro they're not going to come knocking your door down and i and i wanted to ask you a little bit about that um you know because i've got some guys there are some local guys who are starting to try to get to that triple a level and things like that um and so you know you have a great relationship with Daiwa. um so with Daiwa, it was that something that you reached out a few times or did they come you know come to you or was it through like a mutual you know mutual connection you had with another angler or all right, I lost Brent. Let me call him right back. Sorry about that. You there? Yeah, you know, you're good. Can you hear me? Yeah, I got you just fine now. Sorry. All right, no, you're good. Um, but yeah, what I was saying is with uh are are you still with Daiwa? I am. Okay, I was I should have asked that before I went into went into that. But so with a company as big as Daiwa, um, was that something that you reached out to them and they like asked you for a resume, like okay, you know, or or did they know you well enough at that time? I'm not sure how long you've been with them, or 
Or, you know, did they... Um, yeah, how, how did sure, that start? I've been with uh, them now for probably 10 years. Okay. Um, and the way that kind of worked out is... So there's a guy named Kurt Arakawa. Uh, now, Kurt was involved with Iowa for 25 years ago, 20 years ago. And he was the one that developed the Team Iowa with, you know, Clun, the Hibdens, Yellis, uh, my buddy from out in California, Rich Tauber. All these guys were on Team Iowa, And that was Kurt Arakawa that did this. Well, Kurt left, and uh, I think he was selling insurance, and then he was hired on by Jackal Lures to be the marketing manager for Jackal Lures. And I saw Kurt at all the shows, and I always talked to him. And he called me one day and asked me, you know, about doing, you know, working with Diva, and. I go, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm running the Lucky Craft Raws because Lucky Craft was doing Raws at the time. And I said, you know, can I do reels only? And he goes, no, it's got to be both. And I go, well, let me think about it. Let me talk to, to Lucky Craft and see what happens. And, you know, not, not much came up immediately. We talked again. I go, Kurt, you know, we all know how good equipment you guys have. I go, the only problem is you guys have the best high-end stuff, but you don't have any of the the mid-range stuff. And he goes, it's, you know, it's funny that you say that because we're coming out with a new line next season. That's going to be a $150 price point. And he goes, we're calling it the Tatula series. And, you know, this is, I want to say this is 2013. I think I can't remember exactly when that was, but I occurred. If you guys come out with a line like that, then uh, I definitely want to be you know on board. So, I started working with them the next season and at the start of the Tatula uh, reels. And uh, so I've been with them since the initiation of the, you know, that whole Tatula line. Wow. And, and it was because of Kurt, you know, and, and I, I knew Kurt for years. He's a California guy. I mean, Dial was, is based out of Southern California. Uh, the U S office is out of California anyways. And, uh, so it was kind of that, you know, knowing the right person and, you know, being in a position at the right time when, when they were looking to push things uh, marketing-wise to really push this whole new line. So, uh, you know, and then since then, I, I mean, at, at the time, it was myself and Ish Monroe and Takahiro were the only guys running Tyla. And, you know, now we're down to, shoot, there's six or eight or ten of us on the on the team uh uh dial up uh you know and, and that was you know that was such a neat thing for me growing up and being on the outside looking in that that whole team dial up thing was such a cool uh marketing side that it was just that was the coolest thing ever those guys that were on you know yellis and the hibdens and and Clon and uh cochran uh Zell Roland, I mean, those guys were gods to me back then, you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here I'm a, I'm a kid getting into fishing, and you know, it's it was the coolest thing seeing these guys and the rods and reels they're doing, and you know, to fast forward 20, 25 years and and be in that position to uh, work closely with a company like that, and you know, now we're down to 
the tattoo elite rods that are signature rods that, you know, this wasn't a, here's a, here's a rod. Can we put your name on it? It was what rod do you want to see in our lineup? And, you know, getting four or five prototypes and, and say, Nope, it needs this. And then, um, you know, two weeks later, three weeks later, here comes another four or five rods. And then, Oh, this one's almost right. You need to change the handle. You need to do this. And, I mean, everything that, that is on those rods that all of us are pushing, you know, are all exactly what we wanted. It was never, you know, just, hey, we want this rod in the lineup. Can we put your name on it? It was, it had to have all of our input on it. And uh, it's really been a, a great line, you know, the Tattoo Elite Series. That's all, those are the only rods I fish now. And, I mean, we're on, I don't even know how many different generations of the Tatchley, you know, reels uh, since then, but uh, such a great company. They've done such a great job and uh, make a really good product. Yeah, that's awesome. I, um, yeah, I always wanted to know, you know, how a lot of the pros like you, you know, made relationships with certain companies, you know, like, you know, KVD, KVD is synonymous with Bass Pro Shops, Nitro Boats, and all that kind of stuff. And I would love to hear, you know, how did he get hooked up with Bass Pro Shops? You know, how did that conversation go? Um, but back to Daiwa, I, I've had, I had an old Team Daiwa rod. It was a full cork handle. I think I think it was a cranking rod, but it was, you know, back, that was one of my you know, first nicer rods I bought, but it was the team Daiwa. It wasn't just plain Daiwa. It was like a whole different, you know, line of rods. And I just thought it was, a yeah. be- I just thought it was the best thing ever, you know, but, uh, I agree. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And that, but like you said, it was, it had the, you know, it was like, Ooh, this is elite. This is team Daiwa, you know? So that was, I thought it was cool, but it, I'm pretty sure it was a cranking rod. Um, yeah. But yeah. And that's, I, I've, you know, I don't have any of the Tatula Elite rods, but I remember I've looked them up on Tackle Warehouse and, you know, done some rod research and stuff like that and see, you know, it's all the, you know, Brunaler series or Randy Howell series, things like that. So it's really cool to see or to hear, you know, the backstory behind what all it takes and they're all the input you guys put into that. It's not just a generic rod that, yeah, I like it's that not, one. All right. Yeah, it's... No, it's not. It was down to... You know, what real seat we wanted, the length of the handle, the length of the rod itself, the, you know, the action, and, you know, everything. And it was a lot of work went into making these things. I, I want to say it took us about a year to get them right. Wow. Before they ever came to market. And, uh, you know, I, I've, you know, I've never looked back. But that's all I'm using is the Tattoo Elite Series of rods now. Okay. Um, which, so do you, your like signature rod what was the or how many signature rods did you get to design on that uh i did five okay um i i did a multi-purpose rod a 7.3 medium heavy which is uh we you know it's kind of that broad spectrum rod it, it, it'll do everything and i did that on purpose because i wanted that one for you know exactly what we called it it's a multi-purpose rod and uh I did that one. I did a uh, another finesse uh, medium medium light action rod. Or sorry, medium medium heavy action rod. It's kind of a crossover rod, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a it's a seven foot rod. It's it's a very lightweight rod in hand because it has the AGS guides on it. And then uh, I did two cranking three cranking rods. I did uh, 
a 7-2 medium action. That's uh, I really designed that around a 1.5 square bill. Mm-hmm. You know, and anything kind of like that shallow to mid-depth range. And then I did a big uh, eight-foot cranking rod because they didn't have a, an eight-foot, you know, glass cranking rod. There's, and the, the the medium is also a glass rod. Okay. We did the eight-foot glass rod for throwing a, a big, you know, like a 3.5 XD style crankbait. You know, not a not a not the big 10 XD style like that. Yeah. You know, that 16 foot, you know, 18 foot depth running crankbait. We didn't have a good rod for that. So I designed that. And then I designed a seven, four medium heavy. That is a rod that I'll throw a 2.5 on, you know, bigger square bills. And then also a, uh, a chatterbait. But I, I really designed that one for the chatterbait because I don't throw the 2.5 that often. Uh, I'll throw a, a lipless crankbait on that rod and the uh, chatterbait on that rod. Uh, you know, and it's glass rod as well. So uh, the two bait casters, the three, uh, sorry, six rods, just two bait casters, the three cranking. Mm-hmm. And then I have a uh, 7-1 drop shot rod. It's a, it's a spinning rod and it's a medium action. And I did a medium action because prior to that, you know, traveling cross country, I can't, you know, come home, unpack, and repack. So I have to pack for the entire season. Right. And there was always a pain, you know, packing three different actions of spinning rods. I wanted one spinning rod that would do a lot. Mm-hmm. And we call it the drop shot rod, but I used it for everything. And so but it's that medium action. It's just that good all-around, you know, spinning rod. And we put the AGS guides on it, which are a lot lighter. Uh, carbon fiber, uh, the transfer of vibration from the guides to the blank uh, is a lot higher because of the carbon fiber, but uh, also the weight. Uh, the one, you know, the biggest guide on the spinning rod, the very first guide is always the biggest one. Mm-hmm. And if you take like a Fuji guide, that, that first rod, the biggest spinning rod guide, that weighs more than the entire string of the, of the guides in that carbon fiber guide. So just that alone, just think about the weight that decreases just by, by doing that. Wow. Anytime you decrease the weight, you increase the sensitivity. Plus you get that transfer of vibration through, uh, you know, that carbon fiber guide to the rod blank. So you know, your line's going through the guides. The guides have to be sensitive. They have to transfer that vibration to the blank. That blank transfers the vibration to your hand. So, you know, it's a more sensitive rod because of those guides. And gotcha. so that, that spinning rod, the drop shot rod, we put those AGS guides on it uh, just to decrease weight and increase sensitivity. Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, so I was a little surprised to hear you didn't have more, like more than just the one finesse rod, but I guess, like you said, that, that medium action spinning rod kind of, does it kind of tackle... All, any kind of finesse that you do uh, outside of drop shot, or, or is it mainly just drop shot for yeah, you? Yeah, anything uh, spinning related, I, I throw anything and everything. I throw on that rod. Okay, gotcha. Uh, you know, wacky rig. You know, weightless wacky wacky rig, a NACO rig, uh, swim bait. You know, small ball head swim bait. Um, you name it, I'll throw uh, that rod. Uh, you know, setup and. 
you know, we call it the drop shot rod, but it's not necessarily just designed for a drop shot. It's just that do haul. You know, yeah. it's, I like those kind of broad spectrum rods that can can do multiple applications, and that way guys don't have to be you know, fine tune one rod for one application. You know, you want one rod that can do multiple applications, right? And you know, you can save a lot of money by buying a rod like that because you can do so many things with it. You, know, you don't want to spend two hundred dollars on a specialty rod and only be able to throw one bait on it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna spend that much money, you don't want to be able to do something that's uh, you can do multiple things on it. And you know, what I'll see with with that rod is that you know a guy can buy that rod, you know, spend the I think they're two hundred and fifty. I, I don't know the exact cost of them. Um, you know, with the AGS rod or guide on it, and be able to throw a drop shot, be able to throw a wacky rig Senko, you know, be able to throw a Nako rig, be able to throw a shaky head, you know, be able to throw a ball head swim bait, you know, whatever spinning application you can think of. I mean, it'll, it'll tackle it. Gotcha. So, All right. Uh, what's the taper on that spinning rod, or what's like your preferred taper? Like, is it a? Is it kind of a? A fast or extra fast for your for your finesse? Uh, normally a fast. Okay. Uh, normally I run fast taper on on you know most of those rods. Um, I just like that 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 fast uh, you know taper to where you can usually have a little bit softer tip and have plenty of backbone to it. Yeah. Your softer tip's going to help with castability. It's going to help with fishability, meaning that. You're not overpowering the bait on the bottom. You know, if it's something that you're, you know, drop shot or, um, you know, NACO rig where you're trying to impart a lot of action on the bait but not a, not a lot of horizontal movement away from the fish, mm-hmm. then you need a little bit softer tip on that rod just so that you're not overpowering that bait, moving it too far. And uh, But you also want to have that backbone on there to where you can set the hook and get, uh, you know, better hookup ratio. Right, now that makes perfect sense. Um, I do have a question for you. It's kind of a unique to me kind of question, but um, I have a physical disability, and uh, so the way I hold a fishing rod, I can't throw a spinning reel because the bell hits my hand. So all my rods are bait casters, and uh, so throwing things that are super lightweight are pretty difficult because, you know, this most yes. it's like, and I haven't... I haven't bought any of the bait finesse reels. I know they make, you know, like a Curado BFS or Shimano makes another one. Tatula, I think, makes a 70 size reel, I think. There's a Tatula 70, I believe. Um, so that's more, yes. not not really bait finesse, but, you know, a smaller spool that's not going to have as much line, lighter, lighter, easier to throw it out. So I've got to get one of those reels. But um, the, the bait casting, and, and, I guess I know the answer to this, but why why do you think drop shotting or a lot of the finesse stuff on on bait casting rods why hasn't it taken off as much? And I know bait finesse is getting bigger in the US. I know it's pretty big in Japan, but why has it taken so long to kind of do that? Is it just because spinning works so well or is there are there other reasons um, that are that so- kind of benefit? I, I think that uh, it's easier to cast a lighter bait. Uh, they are making, you know, better reels. You know, Dai was making the, the SD spools yeah. of reels, which are designed for casting lighter baits. 
like you said, you can go down to a smaller frame spool or a, uh, sorry, a smaller framed reel mm-hmm. like a seventy uh, with an SV spool on it. You know, to me, I use the, the that standard one hundred size, but with an SV spool, okay. just a standard tactical SV, which is really good for light baits. Gotcha. So the, the concept behind that is that the spool is shallower. You have less line on the spool. Mm-hmm. Therefore, when you make a cast, there's less centrifugal force on that spool spinning. Yep. To where when you get that overrun, you don't get as much of a backlash because you don't have the weight of the spool because all that line on there spinning and slowing down will slow down on its, on its own. Like you, you can actually take an SV spool and make a cast. You know, and you have your thumb on it, you make that cast, and when it's in the midair, you can let go with your thumb and just look at that spool and that bait will hit the hit the water and you will not get a backlash. Wow. Okay. And so that's the concept with that. And, you know, that bait finesse is kind of doing the same thing because you're casting real white baits. Um, the other thing for me is, is, is braided line. You know, everyone's going to braided line on their spinning reels now. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people are switching over to braided lines on bait casters. Uh, I don't like it. I overpower it because of the drag. That's the one thing I like about spinning setup is the drag. Uh, the drags are so much smoother on a spinning reel that uh, when you set the hook, your drag will slip a little bit, and, and you know you'll have less likely of a chance of breaking off. Now I've tried braid two fluorocarbon leader on bottom baits, and I was snapping off my leaders right and left because I was accustomed to setting the hook the way I normally do on a fluorocarbon. But because you have so much power going to, you know, there's zero stretch of braids. You have all that power going to a eight foot leader and you don't have the stretch. So your line breaks. Uh, so I also believe that the, the braid, you know, onto a spinning platform is a big deal because if you're throwing a drop shot all day, you get really bad line twist. And so, having that braid on there your braid does not show the line twist like a fluorocarbon does so i remember back in the day when you know before we were running braid we were running fluorocarbon straight you know spool of fluorocarbon on a spinning rod and i'd have to stop in the middle of the day in the tournament take all the line off and put a whole new spool of line on because my line was so uh twisted that you couldn't fish anymore and i just reeled in cut it off pull all that line off, put a whole new stretch of line on and start fishing again right in the middle of the day. And wow. with braid, you don't have to do that. So, um, you know, I, I just think the lighter baits, that braid scenario is is probably a, a, a reason why a lot of people gravitate toward a spinning setup. But believe me, plenty of people do it with, with bait casters. And now, like you said, with that bait finesse or with the SD spools, you know, that Daiwa has on the Tattoola series. Mm-hmm. It's allowing more guys to do what you're doing where you don't have to use a spinning wheel. You could just use bait casters. Gotcha. Yeah, I looked. That was, I couldn't remember the, the acronym, the SV, but uh, yeah, I looked at the Tatula 70 size SV reel. I've, I'd been looking, you know, debating on getting one, but uh, that may be something I'll go with to try for, uh, you know, my drop shot rod. Because my, yeah, my drop shot is a really great system. Yeah. Um, it really does make a big difference. So if I'm fishing any light baits, light crank baits, light jerk baits, light top water, uh, or if I'm going to skip docks with a jig, 
I always put that stuff on an SV spool because it's way better for uh, backlashes. It's way better for casting light baits. Yeah. Uh, but it's also better for skipping docks. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I get fewer backlashes because of it. Uh, the other thing I will all recommend doing is if you're going to throw lighter baits, you know, if you go with that 70 or you're going to go with a standard SV spool is, you know, and you're planning on throwing a light bait, take, take that spool, uh, take that line, you know, spool it up with, spool up with line, you know, whatever bait you're going to have on there and take a cast or a cast and a half on that reel, make a long cast take a little piece of tape and put it over your spool and then wind that line over the top of that tape. And when you go to make those casts, you know, when you're out on the water, you only have that cast to backlash and you will never backlash deeper into the spool. You'll be able to fish longer without backlashing because it, it, it'll, it'll stop you from backlashing, you know, all the way down at the base of that spool with having that tape on there. Hmm. So yeah. that's a great, you know, a great way to kind of get out and be more effective on the water, especially if it's with a bait where you're going to be backflashing a lot. That's one way to get away with that, you know, stopping that backlash. Gotcha. No, that that makes a lot of sense, and I have never heard of that. I mean, that's that's a great tip. I mean, even for uh, if it's, you know, a beginning angler who backlashes all the time, you know, no matter what they're throwing, or if it's, you know, you're going out and it's, 20 mile an hour winds all day and you're going to be throwing into the wind and that's that's usually the time that i'll backlash is i'll i'll be throwing a shaky head or a drop shot or something lightweight into the wind and then it catches it and you know there you go but no that's a that's a heck of a tip that that's that's incredible yes it's very beneficial to do that you know especially if if you know for kids getting out learning how to cast a uh, mm-hmm. big caster or you're learning how to skip a jig around docks, you know, whatever it is, you do that, you know, you know, help yourself, save you, save you a bunch of headaches for sure. Well, that makes perfect sense. And, and save, save some money on destroying all that line on oh, yeah. school too. Yeah. And then I think, I think we've all been there at one point or another, you get a backlash that's not repairable and you're like, Oh, well there goes a whole spool of line. You have to cut it all off. Spool and, of line. Oh yeah. yeah. I've been there. Yeah. Bunch. And heck that's the, most of the reels I've got are the 100 size, you know, but I, what I'll do is yeah. I've got, I, I put kind of a backing on them. So I'll fill it up, you know, about halfway with just a cheap monofilament or something like that. And then I'll fill up the, you know, the upper half or the last half with my fluorocarbon. So that way I don't yeah. have a whole entire spool. So I've, you know, saved some money that way. Um, but de- sure. definitely, definitely don't fish with a leader. And, and, uh- also on that too, when you're doing that, next time you do it, do it with braided line. Okay. Because uh, braided line is uh, lighter. Okay. Than monofilament, and it goes back to that SV spool system. You know, the SV ah. spool is lighter, so you don't have that centrifugal force in that spool as it's spinning. Hmm. You know, the lighter the lighter it is, the less centrifugal force there is. So yeah, when you decrease the weight on the spool, uh, it's gonna uh, it'll actually perform better. Okay. Uh, so next time you get a spool or anybody listening, if you got a brand new reel, spool up the base of that thing with braid, and it'll decrease the weight at the base of that spool. And then you have to tape it, though, to the, you know, if it doesn't have a, a riffle spool where you tie the line to it, you know, if it's just a solid spool, yeah, you got to run tape on it because that the base of that spool will slip if you run braid right to it, and it'll mess up your line. So you got to put a little piece of tape on there. 
and then wind the braid over the top of it and then you know run half or three quarters of of that braid on the best spool and then run your fluorocarbon on the top of that gotcha yeah yeah i didn't i didn't really think about the braid being lighter but i guess that makes that makes sense so yeah i'm well i'm about to go through and re-spool on my reels for the you know upcoming i fish a little tournament trail it's it's electric only stuff but you know our all our tournament start up here in a few weeks so i'm about to go through and put all new line on so i'll definitely be putting braid on a couple of them or i may put it on a couple then leave a couple like the way it is now just so i can see a definite difference you know kind of do you know kind of experiment with it but i'm definitely going to try that yeah that's a good thing to try for sure nice well heck you know i appreciate those that that advice there um yeah well how much how much longer on your drive do you have i don't want to keep you too long oh we've got about another hour to go i think gotcha Um, well, I, I won't keep you too much longer. I had a couple more questions for you. But, uh, yeah. so, you know, most of my, I don't have a whole lot of listeners, but most of them are local to North Georgia and around Lake Lanier. So I do, I have, I've got kind of a a question for you. So if you were going to Lake Lanier right now, water temperature is right at 50, depending on where you are, it's either low, low 50s or upper 40s, depending on where you are on the lake. But, you know, wintertime, and I know you've been to Lake Lanier before, but um, if you were coming to Lake Lanier, what would you do? Like, what, what's your what's your plan of action right now? Uh, I, I, you know, I'd be out on the main lake looking at pit points. I'd be looking at, you know, humps or ridges close to the main lake. You know, if it was a big creek, um, you know, big main creek points, uh, but more main lake, and I would be – uh, probably concentrate heavy on a drop shot, a jig, uh, you know, out on the main lake, brush piles, that kind of stuff. Um, if I was going to throw a reaction, I would throw a, a jerk bait. Um, uh, Lucky Craft makes a lightning pointer DD, uh, stands for deep diver. That's kind of my go-to jerk bait right now. Uh, it gets down a little bit deeper. The thing runs about 10, 12 feet. Uh, so it gets down a little bit deeper. If you have some brush piles where the tops of them are 10, 12 feet, then that's a good jerk bait to throw. Uh, or just for running, you know, points in the morning. You know, some of those clay points with a jerk bait. Uh, mid-diving crankbait, like a uh, Lucky Craft 1.5 DD. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the DD DRS. DRS stands for deep rattle sound. And same thing, I'd probably run some of those clay points. A little bit of wind or in the morning, I'd probably run those clay points, and then after that, I'd probably be out, you know, on a drop shot or a jig around, uh, you know, brush. Um, I have never fished there this time of year, but I'm just assuming that that's what you could get done. You know, go out and catch them that way. Um, I don't know if they, if they, you know, run to the backs of the creeks after shad or what this time of year, but you know, I know spotted bass love the main lake. Uh, especially a herring lake like that where there's a massive amount of bait for them to eat out there. I, I think they're going to be more along those, you know, that main body, uh, you know, next to some sort of structure. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I I, I wanted to pick your brain because I know you're you're a finesse guy. You're good with the spotted bass. I, did, I didn't know if you'd ever been here in the wintertime, but uh, I tell you um, – 
the last few years, Lanier has really flexed its muscles with spots. I mean, lately, there's a, a couple of little local clubs that if you don't have 21, 22 pounds, you're not, you're not going to be in the money. I mean, it's, it's insane right now. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 20, 20, 21 pounds of spotted bass is, is not, not, not like everybody's doing it, but it's very common to see 21, 22 pounds of winning these tournaments. Even the, even the high school tournaments, I'm, I'm a high school teacher and I'm the fishing coach at the high school I teach at. And, um, the, even the high school tournaments, it'll take 19, 20, 21 pounds to win them. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Um, but of course, Lanier is one of those finicky places too. You can go out there and have a great day and then go back the next day and do the same exact thing. And they're not, they just don't want to, it's, you know, Herring Lake, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's interesting that you said you wanted to stay, you know, more main Lake because I I guess it's, you know, me historically, this is when the ditch bite starts to kind of, kind of fire up, you know? Um, yep. And that's you know not not all the way back in the pockets, but it just depends on where you are in the lake. But they're not they're definitely not quite all the way back in the ditches yet. So you know your your game gotcha. plan staying main lake probably would be the perfect thing to do right now. I mean you probably you kind of hit it right on the head. Um, gotcha. Yeah, but and a lot a lot of guys are um, you know doing the finesse, the finesse swim baits like the ball head like a Kitek things like that slow yep. rolling it on the bottom. That's pretty big right now. Um, Domeki rig certain days. Um, yeah, chicken spoons always a player in the, in the winter time for me too. But yeah, the, the, those those kind of things. Shaky heads, solid. I mean, I'm, I'm usually I'm I'm, a, I'm I'll go to the shaky head. But uh, yeah, I find myself with and this is another thing I wanted to get into is I find myself not throwing drop shot quite as much as I used to. With, uh-huh. with with forward facing sonar, uh, I guess I mean, I, and I know I know you can pitch and cast a drop shot out and still, you know, drag it, you know, depending on where the fish are. But um, yeah, I find myself throwing a shaky head a whole lot more, like in whenever whenever I used to throw a drop shot, you know, to get a bite. Have you have yeah. you found yourself changing any like as far as like how often you throw certain finesse baits? Have you gone to some of the the Demiki type rig or the forward facing sonar minnows or, you know, have you, uh, have you changed much? You know, I have recently, yeah. um, you know, I, I, uh, if it's going to be, especially the Highland Reservoir, um, you know, drop shot is a big deal. Um, but I, I say Highland Reservoir, you know, when you're fishing for smallmouth, to me, it's a drop shot, drop shot is such an effective forward facing, you know, pan optics bait. Uh, for smallmouth, but when you get into a Highland Reservoir or something like that, you know, like the Lake of Lanier uh, and Spotted Bass, you know, I'm going to have a drop shot, but I will also have, uh, you know, Buckeye makes a jig head called the Scope Head that's designed for, you know, forward-facing sonar where you can put a minnow-style bait. In fact, we, Yamoto came out with a bait called the, uh, a Scope Shed. Mm-hmm. So now you have a Buckeye jig head that, is designed to fit perfectly with this scope shad uh, minnow style bait that Yamoto makes. So you have that, the, the head, you have the bait to basically go and, and fish, you know, pan optics. You know, I run Garmin, so I'm running pan optics. And when I get to a Highland Reservoir like that, you know, 
spotted bass. You know, that's going to be one of the major baits that, that I will throw for looking at those fish that are suspended and, and you know, not necessarily Dominky dropping it to them. You know, Dominky, when that thing came to light, it was a drop and hold it to them, whereas now it's that forward facing of casting out to them and kind of penciling, you know, that bait down to the suspended fish. And, right. uh, you know, Buckeye and Yamamoto came out with the perfect setup to do that. So that is something that I run in my, my arsenal now when I'm fishing, you know, uh, something like that. Gotcha. Yeah. I, yeah. And this, I guess that's the, the redneck in me is, uh, you know, a Demiki rig. We're casting it out. You know, I've recently have been throwing the Berkeley power. What's it called? Power switch. Yeah. Power. It's, it's, a Demiki style bait, but you know you can jig it vertically. You can cast it out. You can, you know, reel it above the above suspended fish or you know above them on the bottom. That kind of thing. So it's pretty versatile. But yeah, when I when I say Demiki, we're we're casting it out to them. I mean, even if it's not yeah. that bait. But yeah, I saw that uh, that Buckeye bait today online. Actually, I was looking looking at some uh, doing some online shopping, and I I, I was wanting to ask uh, since you brought it up. So the shape of that, how the head kind of goes underneath where the plastic is, like it goes out underneath the hook. What is that just for an extra keeper, or is that to get weight back? Is it more like a center center of mass kind of thing? It's the center of mass, is to get the weight back a little bit. So okay. that if you're doing the straight down vertical presentation, it sits perfectly flat in the water versus being, you know, a lot of times a standard jig head where all the weights in the front. Uh, a lot of times it sits different okay. you know, down there. Uh, so the original Daniki head was designed to drop down the fish and hold it, not do anything with it. You're just holding it above them. Gotcha. And that was the original design that uh, you know Daniki came out with a, a head similar to that, where the the weight kind of comes around the belly a little bit and adds the uh, it has a different effect on the bait itself. Yeah. Um, so it does that. Um, but what I like about the Buckeye head is that it works great casting to those fish that you see out there on, on, you know, pan optics. But what people don't realize about that head is that you can drop it vertical to fish and you can hop it like a spoon. Mm -hmm. And have you ever thrown an ice jig? I've not. An ice jig, uh, when you snap it, you, it's, it's designed to drop vertical on fish, and then you snap it kind of like a spoon. But what it does is it darts all over the place. Okay. And this head will do that, is it'll dart around instead of just, you know, if you, if you snap a jig head straight up, the bait just comes straight up and comes straight down. Whereas with that uh, Buckeye head, if you drop it straight down and you hop it, the bait will, will jump up and dart two feet over to the side and then when you snap it again it darts two feet over to the other side and then it, so it's, oh. it's darting all over the place instead of a up and down motion it's a side to side kind of all over erratic action so yeah you know people don't realize that you can do that with that head so if you see fish vertical you can drop it to them and then you can you can you know hop it and it'll it'll jump and dart all over the place Gotcha. Yeah, well, I'll have to pick up some of those heads, too, because like I said, I've been throwing that the Berkeley Power Switch, which the way you're describing this head is basically the same exact, like same, very versatile. It's not just to drop vertical. It's not just to cast out. 
you can you know kind of jig it like a jig it like a spoon and i i love that kind of thing with the bait especially with the forward face well i've got live scope as well um but yeah. you know with live scope it's um yeah having one rod in hand that you can do three or four different things with you don't have to throw it down oh let me grab the shaky head or let me let me grab a drop shot let me let me grab this you know it's you know you've got it in your hand depending on where the fish are setting up you know you can do all the different things like me and my me and my brother-in-law were fishing on Lanier uh, a couple weeks ago and uh, out fishing a road bed in like 35 feet of water. And we found a mega school. We thought we thought there were stripers the way they were acting. And I, I threw in there with a jigging spoon first, caught one. And it was a spot, you know, n- nothing big, like two, two and a quarter maybe. And then I had just bought that power switch and I've never really thrown like that Demiki style or, you know, that, that uh buckeye style of head so i was like all right well they're biting i want to pick it up i want to try it and i caught a you know we caught we caught probably 20 fish in two hours they were just feeding like crazy um but i caught them i caught them slowly reeling it above above the suspended fish and in the schools of bait they came up and chased it and they hit it like that i caught them jigging it vertically i caught them casting it out letting it fall all the way to the bottom and like kind of hopping it back i mean it was I caught fish four or five different ways on one bait, and that's that's what that buckeye yeah. head sounds a lot like. Yeah, yeah, it, it would do the same thing for sure. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'm definitely gonna uh, gonna look at those. But well, I think I've kept you about about long enough. We're just over an hour now total. But um, yeah, thank you so much. I, I really, really of appreciate course. it. Um, good luck in your season. When does your uh, Bass Pro Tour season start? Uh, we start off the end of this month. Okay. Uh, we'll be at Toledo Bend. Okay. Uh, I want to say uh, I'll end up leaving around the 22nd because uh, I have to drive out to uh, Toledo Bend's on the border of Texas and, and uh, Louisiana. Okay. And so, you know, it's a it's a hard two-day drive to get there for me. Gotcha. Um, you know, to, two two and a half day drive to get there and then uh start practice and then uh the tournament will be uh i want to say the first day of the tournament is either the 30th or it's right there in february so it's kind of right there at the end of this month beginning of february uh we're on toledo bend for the, the bass pro tour all right now so do so, you do you end up keeping a boat like somewhere on the East Coast if you do have like a break to go back home, or do you? Or how do you? How do you manage that nationwide difference so I, there? I I leave everything back there, so I'll start here. I'll leave my house the end of January here, and I'll drive out to the first event, and gotcha. then uh, my next event will be over in Alabama. <laughs> so I'll drive it over to a friend's house, okay, and leave my boat and truck, and then I'll fly home. Gotcha, and then. Uh, fly back and fish the one in Alabama and then, you know, drive to the next one and leave it there. Same thing, fly home, fly back, fish that tournament. You know, I just kind of try and leave my boat truck where it's safe and, you know, I'll fly home for 10 days, two weeks, and then fly back to my next event. Gotcha. Now, I figured that's what you did. That'd be a lot. That'd be a, too many thousands of miles on a, on a boat and truck and trailer, but (laughs) yeah, yeah, there's no way. And the cost of gas time driving back and forth is Mm -hmm. would be would be a pain plus just the time alone you know we think about two days out to toledo bend and then i've got to drive two days home 
and then it'd be two or three days out to the next event. There's just no way. It's just you know, time and, and uh, money. There's no way. So, yeah, wow. I leave stuff out there and, and fly home. Gotcha. All right. Well, man, again, I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, safe travels on y'all's trip. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I really do appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, thanks again. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to the Bucktails Podcast. 